Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to Between the Lines with Virtual Academy, our podcast going beyond the badge to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. I am your co-host, Brent Hinson, and if you're listening the week this episode is published, happy Thanksgiving to you. It's all about giving thanks this week and Before we bring on our guest and his incredible story, I want to bring on our host, who I am very thankful for. He came in and helped us continue on this podcast as we've made it through this year, and he is Mr. Michael Warren. How are you, sir? Brent, I'm doing great, man, and I'm glad you brought up Thanksgiving because uh, the older I get, the more reflective I get, and I don't know if you're experiencing that too, but uh, I look at my kids, and I think how incredibly blessed I am with my kids and then I get to come to work and work with uh, good folks like you and with Aaron and uh, thankful for that. But I'm, I'm really thankful too, for the people that we've been able to speak with together this year. And, and today is no different. I'm, I'm so thankful that we get the chance to do this, man. Yeah. And uh, I, I think the older that I get, I reflect back on things, and I guess when I was a kid, I didn't know what I didn't know, and I took a lot of things for granted, and luckily, with uh, time and age, you realize all the good things you have in your life. We we truly are blessed, uh, not only in this country, uh, but we're blessed in our jobs, and we're blessed in our families, and and I I do think we lose sight of it sometimes, And, and I think sometimes that we need a reminder of how good we have it. And I'm hoping that that's what we get out of this week, uh, because I think our guest has an incredible story to help us maybe be a little bit more thankful. So what can you tell us about our guest today? Well, you probably, if you're listening, you've heard our guest before. He originally joined us in episode 11 back in late July, where he talked about the details surrounding the Cameron Sanders murder case. By the way, you can find that episode at Between the Lines with virtualacademy.com. At some point, we knew we wanted to have him back because he has an incredible personal story to tell. And it's one that in this week of Thanksgiving, hopefully, will allow us a moment to step back, kind of take stock of the things in our lives and appreciate all the ways we are truly blessed, regardless of our current circumstances. Because I think once you hear a story, many of us wouldn't fault Victor Loria for being bitter or angry, but he's not. Instead, choosing to focus on his blessings rather than dwell on the hardships in his life. Currently, is an assistant professor and department chair for the Criminal Justice Department at Madonna University. Prior to that, he served as an assistant chief of police with the city of Novi. We are glad to have him back. We welcome Mr. Victor Laurie. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. Vic, uh, it's always a pleasure. I mean, you, you and I, we see each other away from the podcast, although the podcast has been pretty consistent lately. Uh, But what I'd like to do today, if it's okay with you, I'd kind of like to walk our listeners through because they heard a little bit about you in the intro and they heard a little bit about you uh, in our first podcast. But I want to walk through uh, your career just a little bit because I want people to get a sense of the main part of our story, where you were at personally and where you were at professionally. So we talked about this, Brent, how Vic, he comes from a law enforcement family. Uh, but when did you start in policing? I started in 1988. Got hired on by Novi, and that was the beginning of my dream. Yeah, 1988, for our young listeners, uh, the TV was still color at that point. But there uh, were no cell phones. There, there were no cell phones. <laughs> <laughs> we did have some remote controls. Uh, uh, personal computers, they, they were here and there. But uh, anyway, 1988. And you start off as a patrol officer, and you did a bunch of things as a patrol officer. You did canine, and um, you were a fantastic cop. But then you became one of the first of our officers to go to a uh, an undercover group. And what was that all about? Uh, I spent about four and a half years in our multi-jurisdictional sonic task force, which is uh, compromised of um, area jurisdictions. It was uh, the first task force that was started by local municipalities without um, state police oversight. And a great, rewarding time in my career. I mean, it was it was one of my lifelong dreams to work undercover. And uh, it was all that and even, even more, you know. <laughs> um, there's, there's really nothing like working plain clothes. And I, I, I really enjoyed it and got to do it for a lot longer than what I anticipated. And 
if anybody's worked in policing for any length of time, especially back in that time, you got to grow a beard. Oh, it was, you know, so, hey, I got a take home car. Um, yeah. <laughs> which was which was great. I could show up in shorts and flip flops and a t shirt. Um, I grew a beard. I had my ear pierced. Um, my hair by the time I I left the unit was halfway down my back. Um, I was the complete opposite of um, what you would see on me when I was on duty. For our young officers out there, you know, beards are becoming more commonplace. Oh, yeah, but they were absolutely taboo. No no one had a beard back then. All right, and I'm going to call you out on this one right here. Uh, another big part of your persona at the time were Harley-Davidson t-shirts. Oh, my God, I had a thousand of them. They, you know, <laughs> that was that was always part of it. You know, I, I was in the detective bureau um, before I, I went to um, our narcotics unit, and that was a suit and a tie every single single day. And even when we were called in in the middle of the night, it was a suit and a tie. It wasn't like today where you got to wear some 5'11 pants and, you know, a knit shirt or something like that. So to go from being that formal to literally anything goes was unspeakable freedom. It was it was great. It also afforded you the opportunity to be, uh, in most cases, a, a lot more self-supervising uh, than you had been before. You had a lot of autonomy, didn't you? Oh, yeah. There, I mean, there's some autonomy when you're in investigations, but you're starting and stopping your day you know, at the department, and a lot of your time is spent there. When, when you work narcotics, it's all out on the street. And, you know, you work crazy 50, 60, 70 hour work weeks. You're going to court two or three times a week. Um, I, I absolutely loved it, um, but I never really appreciated the stress that it put uh, on my wife and in the family life. And, and that's something that I didn't realize until later. You, you were very fortunate, are very fortunate, uh, because the reason why you didn't recognize that there was stress that was created was because she let you live your dream. Oh yeah. I mean, she, she she's, supported you. She's the greatest you. blessing I've ever received. And, and that's fantastic. But at some point though, four and a half years, <laughs> good things going to come to us, right? All, they all come to an end. So, so what, what happened when you came out? What, what'd you go to then? Um, I went back into investigations and um, spent a, a couple of years there working some, some high profile cases. Yeah, including Cameron Sanders. Yes, episode Cameron 11, Sanders just was it during that time period. There was, there was another high profile uh, murder, um, torture death of a two-year-old little girl that, that you and I worked. Um, but, but then it was time to promote. And, um, finally after 16 years and countless tries, you know, uh, I, I finally bubbled to the surface and, and became a sergeant. As uh, a wise man, I, I knew once said the cream always rises to the top. Yeah. Some of the time it's not that fast though. Yeah, so a, in my case, it took, it took a while, you know, I must've been heavy cream, <laughs> but the, the decision to rem- promote uh i mean obviously it was something you wanted but even good things come with a price because you love being a detective oh, didn't you? Uh, at the time um you know i i spent some time thinking about like what is wrong with me why why can't i get promoted and and i looked and i saw people with you know some people with five six years on the job you know, getting promoted before me, other people, you know, eight, 10 years. And, and I just, just thought about what's wrong with me. But honestly, when it finally came at 16 and uh, I look back when I, when I walked out the door for the final time, it was a great blessing to have waited that long because I got to do the work that, that, people expect for a really long time. I didn't spend a couple years in patrol, a couple years in investigation, and then became the boss. I spent the majority of my career in patrol and in investigations actually doing the work. So when I became a supervisor, it didn't matter whether I was in patrol or investigations uh, or administration. I I knew what work was getting done and, and how to go about that. Now, in our agency, when you get promoted, uh, what's your first assignment? You go back to patrol yeah. on the night shift. <laughs> on the night shift. And how long were you Were you a, a road patrol sergeant? 
I was a road patrol sergeant for about 13 months. 13 months. Uh, not even the number of months in comparison to the number of years that it yeah. took to get that position. Yeah. What happened after 13 months? So after 13 months, I was promoted to lieutenant and uh, spent a couple of years um, in investigations as the investigative lieutenant and then was transferred back down to patrol for a short period of time. And um, then I but became... How, how, was, how was it being the, the investigations lieutenant as compared to being the investigator? So the first lesson that I had to learn when I became a boss in investigations, because that's really where my passion was, um, I, I loved investigations, was I had to learn my job. When, when I first be became in charge of investigations, what I found myself doing was doing an investigator's job. And one day I realized that I was interviewing somebody out at a scene and they had some good information. And when I finished with the interview, I looked at my notebook and I said, oh, my God, this report's going to take me forever to write. <laughs> and then my next thought was, why, why, why am I even interviewing people? I'm a lieutenant. That's not my job. Um, and I, I figured out the reason why I was doing that was because that's what I was comfortable doing. I was comfortable being at the crime scene, doing investigations, interviewing people. What I wasn't comfortable doing was being the lieutenant who was either back at the station or on the exterior of the crime scene, um, providing the resources um, for the people who were actually doing the job. And um, once I learned that, I think I became uh, a better boss. And you and I, we've talked about this at length. It's hard allowing others to do a job that you did extremely well. And in our mind, we're thinking, you know what? I could do it better, but yeah. that you got to remember what your role is at that point. And, and some of the time I was thinking that, you know, Hey, I know I can do this better than them. So I'm just going to take it over. But other times it was um, my desire to help people out. You know, there's a lot of work that has to go on. So there's some other things that I can be doing to help them out. But, um, that that's not my primary function. I, even after I came to this realization, I would help them out when when they needed it. I'd, I would always ask, what do you need? What can I do? And if there was something which was usually go get me some coffee, get me some bagels, you know, hey, um, you know, keep the other bosses <laughs> away from here, those kind of things. Stay out of my seat. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I would do those. Um, but, you know, that's what I was comfortable doing. Okay, so so you investigations lieutenant, then you go to the road as a lieutenant. How long were you in the position of lieutenant overall? Uh, I think I was in the position of lieutenant overall for about four years. Four years, and and what happened after four years? Um, then I was uh, appointed assistant chief of police. Okay, and and for our listeners, Vic blushes oftentimes when I talk about this, uh, but I need to set the stage for what we're about to talk about. In addition to being uh, the best detective that I ever worked with, uh, the best interviewer and interrogator that I ever worked with, Vic was also a workout fiend. This guy right here was a physical specimen. And, and I, I often say this because I'm jealous of people. His hair was perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and then you couple that with, with the amount of time that he spent working out. And, and he was one of those guys that he did his workout early in the morning and, and he would get to work at, I would say the middle of the night, but he would get to work early in the morning and he would do his workout, but it also afforded him the opportunity to speak to people that were working the night shift that most people in administration didn't get to see. So uh, would it be safe to say that when you're making this transition, you get appointed assistant chief, that even though you were older, you probably were in some of the best physical shape of your entire life. Oh yeah. Uh, I, I've worked out for a majority of my life. I, it's one of the things I enjoy. I consider it a hobby. Um, some people would say, you know, a little bit crazy because, you know, my family some people would say a lot yeah, of it crazy. Well, my, my family would go to vacation for uh, to Florida for spring break for a week. And I'd find a local gym to go work out three or four times because I enjoyed it. Um, I was I was in tip top physical shape. I mean, I could run 10 or 12 miles at the drop of a hat. I, I competed in Tough Mudders and Spartan races. And um, I could keep up with people that were, 
you know, five or 10 years, my junior that were in relatively good shape. And there, there is a, an advantage uh, in our job for being in that kind of shape. Uh, because when you do have to work those, uh, we, we were talking the other day, Yeah, you know, how many times have we worked that 24 hour yeah. shift or that 36 hours straight. And, and if you're not physically ready for it, it, it begins to wear on you much quicker. Yeah. And so you're, you're the assistant chief now, and you get to go and attend what many people believe to be the premier leadership school in law enforcement. What, what is that? Uh, that's the FBI National Academy. Okay, so so for those who don't know, tell 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 us what that's all about. Um, it's ten weeks at the FBI headquarters and training headquarters in Quantico, Virginia, where they select law enforcement officers from all across the world to attend. In my session, we had law enforcement officers from 48 states and 24 foreign countries. And it's it's almost like going back to school for a semester. There are um, academic classes that are held throughout the day and um, physical fitness um, courses, um, either in the morning, some of the time in the evening. And it's a great opportunity to network with other law enforcement professionals. You were very fortunate because our uh, city administration and our department administration, they were very supportive uh, of those types of experiences. In fact, they, they would tell people that leave them alone, yeah. let them take advantage of that full 10 weeks. And, and by the way, when all this stuff is going on, uh, you went back and completed your master's degree at some point, didn't you? Yeah, I, I did. And, and so w- would it be safe to say that life was pretty daggone good? A life was life was sweet, you know, professionally. Um, I considered myself to be at the top of my game. Um, I knew I was approaching uh, the age where I could retire within a few years. I'd went out and explored some other employment opportunities because my dream was um, to eventually go and be a chief of police somewhere else in a medium-sized organization. So I explored those opportunities and um, did, did very well. I, I knew that I had the background and in, in the skills to, to secure a good job post uh, Novi. Um, my personal life, you know, um, I was still married to the same woman I started the job with. We had three beautiful kids. And, and your kids, I'll never forget the Hawaii picture. Three of the cutest kids <laughs> that you could ever yeah. imagine right there. Well, so so w- I guess, would it be safe to characterize that you were at the pinnacle. I mean, everything was going as you had planned it was going to go. Mm-hmm. I I was 10 foot tall, bulletproof, and pretty much had the world by the ass. And But, but you started to notice something. Tell, tell me what that's all about. So being a big workout fiend and having three kids, um, you know, one in, in travel hockey, another one in gymnastics, another one doing extracurricular activities. There, there wasn't a lot of extra money. So I, I bought some cheap gym shoes. And about a week after I bought those gym shoes, I started noticing like a tingling in the, in the soles of both of my feet. And I, I chalked that up to um, bad, cheap shoes. And I'm like, well, you're just going to have to, you know, live through that. Um, but as we'll we'll find out later, it wasn't cheap gym shoes. Well, and Brent, I just had to point something out. You'll appreciate this uh, as a, a Michigan guy. Um, Vic never did anything halfway. And, and when he talks about his son being do a travel hockey, um, Vic built an ice rink in his backyard. So that he, <laughs> oh, and it wasn't just a little rink. It was it was uh, fifty by a hundred. So it was like a half a sheet of ice. Yeah, it would it, it would take some time, but it was it was great to have all my kids out there and some of their friends come on over and play hockey. And I met you were very posts. popular in the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It was it, it was popular. Um, I got to point this out. Uh, he used the plywood for, for, for the boards and everything. And based upon, you know, recent prices of plywood. Oh, geez. Uh, I probably, he probably he could have bought a house eight grand nowadays. Today. You know, <laughs> today 
nice dollars for that. But uh, and, and, and just as a side note here, uh, perhaps one of the only burrs in your saddle at the time was going back to the Cameron Sanders case. Uh, who'd moved in next door to you? Well, a house directly next door to me. And when I say next door, I mean next door was um, the brother of the suspect in the murder case who was eventually convicted. So, so Kevin Michaelitis's brother moves in next door to you, and that's probably the only thing that, that's that's not exactly as you would uh, had planned it at that point. Yeah, it's it's not what I would plan, but you know that's that's a whole nother different story, um, and it's about how you treat people. Yep, um, and the way you treat people really matters. There's things oftentimes in life we can do. But should we do them? And during the course of this investigation, there's no doubt I could have mistreated Kevin. I could have mistreated his family, his brothers, those those type of things. But I, I never did. So when he moved in next door, I, I don't want you to think like I, I didn't think about it. Sure, I thought about it. Um, but having him um, next door, uh, it was it was never an issue. Never, never caused us a problem. So so. It- you, you've got the ice rink in the backyard. Your kids are doing great. You know, everything is going good, but except you get this tingling in the bottom of your feet. And so did you ever follow up on that? Yeah. So um, we're, I'm not a guy who runs to the doctor. You know, most of the time I'm, I let things run its course. And the tingling had been there for a few weeks, and I, I didn't really pay that much attention to it. But one day I went to um, go out on the ice to uh, evaluate some kids who were trying out for the hockey team that I was uh, co-coaching that my son was on. And when I stepped out on the ice, literally I could not skate one stride. I mean, literally I almost fell down. Um, I went back on the bench to check my blades to make sure that everything was okay. They were fine. I went back out on the ice and if the dashboard wasn't there, I would have fallen flat on my face. That's when I knew something wasn't right. But but how do you explain that to, to your your fellow coach? And how, how do you how do you explain that to your wife? What was going on at that point? Well, in typical fashion, I covered it up. You know, <laughs> I I told the head coach, I said, "Hey, I can't skate today," and he's like, "Hey, is is everything okay?" And I looked him straight in the eyes and I lied to him and said, "Yeah, everything's fine." Um, when I went home, um, obviously, I didn't tell my wife. Hey, I you know here's what's going on because my wife is an RN. Um, and if you're married to somebody in the medical profession, you know, you say, Oh, I got a headache. And they're like, Oh, it's, is it an aneurysm? (laughs) You know, my back is sore. Oh, it's my spinal uh, meningitis or something. So I just said, I got some tingling in my feet. So, um, we set up an appointment with my primary care physician and, uh, I went there and, they poked and prodded around a little bit, and um, they said, "You know, I, I I don't really like these neurological things. I'm I'm going to send you to a neurologist." So um, it was uh, it was a few days after that I was in to see a neurologist. Now, now, now Mister Ten Foot Tall and Bulletproof, well, what's going through your mind at this time? Honestly, I, I thought it was some minor minor issue. I mean, I could I was still working out every day. I was still feeling great. You know, um, I just thought, meh, whatever it is, it's it's not that big of a deal. It's a pinch nerve or something like that. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't I didn't worry about it. Stay connected to the Between the Lines podcast by visiting our website at Between the Lines with virtualacademy.com. You can listen to all available episodes, get detailed information about guests, and find links to all of our social media accounts, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You'll also find links to where you can hear episodes using popular podcast providers like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. New episodes available every Tuesday morning at Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. So did you go see the neurologist? I went to the neurologist. They sent me up with a, with an MRI and my wife came with me to that appointment. And um, when they tried to give me an MRI appointment, that was about four to six weeks out. Um, my <laughs> wife really strongly advocated on my behalf to get one sooner. And um, 
after she was told, you know, no a couple of times, they realized she wasn't going to take no for an answer. So they got me an appointment about uh, about four or five days later. Um, it was like 1130 at night uh, at U of M Hospital. Just for context, uh, what how old are you at this point? I'm 47 years old. You know, uh, I was in great physical shape and, you know, I through the course of my career at that time, I probably had... 20, 25 years on the job. Um, outside of the birth of my children, I had taken less than five sick days in 25 years. Vic's one of those guys that, that and, and this is one way we're similar, is we don't burn sick time. I mean, we, we, yeah. we, we at our, our department, you could carry was 1,028 yeah. hours of sick time. And if you, if you got above that, you'd lose the eight hours that you accumulated every month. Yeah. And uh, I donated away more yeah. sick time than I used. Absolutely. Hundreds of hours. So, so, so that's what we're dealing with here. Yeah. So you go and you get the MRI and uh, how long does it take you to get there? How'd you find out about the results? Well, um, I, I had some indications that night um, that things were not well, because after the MRI, um, the tech was walking me to the changing room and, and I said, hey, what'd you see on the uh, on the uh, pictures? And he said, uh, oh, Mr. Laurie, we don't we don't read the pictures. And I looked at him and I said, come on, man, said, you've been doing this for 20 years. You know, you can read them better than the radiologist. And he looked at me, he said, well, um, no, no, your your pictures haven't downloaded yet. And I said, oh, OK. So I went and I got changed. And because the, the hospital was closed, he had to walk me out to an exit door. And when he got to the exit door, he held the door open. He stuck his hand out and he gave me a really good, firm handshake and looked me right in the eye and said, Mr. Laurie, I wish you all the best. Good luck. And you're thinking, man, and, oh, man, this time of night, that yeah. type of goodbye. Yeah, it wasn't. It uh, I don't want to say it was inappropriate, but, you know, we're always reading people right. for underlying meanings. And I said, yeah, this might not be so good. So um, the next day I took off, I, I was scheduled to be off on vacation and uh, I was driving up to the Upper Peninsula to my mom's house, which is about six hours away. And I had my three kids in the car and a dog and uh, got a telephone call. And what was that call all about? It was a call from the neurologist and um, they started out really cryptic asking me, you know, like, um, are you off today? And I said, yes, I'm off. And then there were some questions about had I eaten anything, had I drank anything? And um, as they were going through these questions, I'm like, you know, I don't want to have this conversation in front of my kids. So I pulled off uh, the road and let the kids out of the car, give the dog uh, some water and walk and um, finally the, the nurse said, you know, where are you? And I told her I was about three and a half hours north of my home. And she said, uh, you need to go to the nearest hospital immediately. Um, because we found a mass in your chest. Um, we're not sure what it is, but we're concerned that there may be an aneurysm and, uh, and you could die if it ruptures. And, and, and how old are your kids at this point? Uh, they were, uh, let's see. 15, 13, and 11. And it, they're going to know something oh, is yeah. up. Oh, yeah. Well, so after the phone call, eventually, um, you know, I talked to her and where I was in that part of Michigan, you know, if I'm going to have my my chest cracked open and, <laughs> and aneurysm repaired, and I, I, I'm not feeling warm and fuzzy about you know, there. I'd rather be back home in Metro Detroit where we have tons of specialists. So she she said, turn around, come back down here and, and we'll uh, we'll get you another MRI to uh, diagnose the problem better. Now, after you after you get off the phone with the with the nurse, you got to call another nurse, don't you? Yeah, eventually I, I did call my wife, but the the first people I told were were my kids. Yeah, um, they got back in the car and um, my oldest daughter, Jennifer, um, is, you know, Hey dad, who's that? Who was on the phone? And I said, that's none of your business, you know? And <laughs> yeah, she's that like, Oh, okay. So, uh, once they all got, got in the car, um, I said, Hey guys, uh, unfortunately we gotta, we gotta turn around and we go, gotta go back home. And I'll never forget the reaction of my, my oldest daughter, Jennifer. She actually threw her hands up in her, in the air and slapped her thighs. And she said, who got shot? No, why would she say that? Well, I, I'm sure it's because of years of programming. 
Right. Um, you know, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say the number of vacations um, that were missed, um, the number of birthdays that were uh, missed or canceled as, as a result of, you know, my career choices. Um, my kids lived the same life that I did, that um, the phone rings, somebody needs you, dad's gone, and they have to do, um, deal with what, what's left behind. And, and uh, Vic's one of those guys for our listeners that uh, he and I have had these discussions that your measure uh, as a detective isn't when you answer your phone when you're on call because you have to answer your phone when you're on call you're contractually required to but if you really want to be dedicated then you answer your phone when you're not on call because if they're calling you when you're not on call they really need you and, and but but again everything comes with a cost and, and ju just for context here what what month was this we're talking about oh uh, this was august so in August, so you tell your kids, then you got to call Sherry. And what was her reaction? Uh, so I knew that was going to be a tough phone call to make because I was 47 years old. And um, my wife had lost her mother um, at 47 years old. So I was the same age as her mom. And, and of course, being a nurse, you know, I... I it was devastating, um, but she kept it all together and she said, hey, uh, I'll meet you at the hospital, drop the kids off at home and I'll meet you down there. So um, I started the, the drive home, which was about uh, probably three, three and a half hours. And I bet it felt longer. Um, you, you would think it would feel longer, but on, honestly, it went by so fast because so many things were going through my mind and this is the first time in my life, my adult life, I can recall not being in control. When you're out at a scene, you know, there's certain things you can do or decide not to do, take people to jail, not take people to jail. In an investigation, prioritize things. You're always making decisions and doing things. Same thing with my personal life. I had absolutely zero control on this outcome. And... My, my first thoughts were about my family. And uh, I, I, I'm a Catholic, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian man. And uh, I started to pray. And um, the first thing I did was I told God, I said, hey, you know what? I, I know I'm not in control of the outcome. Whatever the outcome of this is, I'm, I'm totally good with it. Not that it would have mattered if I would have objected, <laughs> um, uh, but I, I told him, uh, I'm turning this whole thing over to you. There's only one thing I ask of you. Whatever the outcome, please make sure my family is taken care of. And honestly, from that moment forward, I, I, I did not have concerns about the outcome. You know, I, I didn't know what it was. You know, I, I, I told God, I said, you know, if this is the way I punch out, if this is the end, I'm totally good with it. Please take care of my family. Well, you, you get to the hospital and you meet Sherry. Yeah. And, you know, that was pretty good. Not, you know, not too emotional. I, 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 have, um, I have a famous saying that all of my kids and my wife, they're probably sick and tired of me here, uh, saying it. Um, but I always tell them, don't worry about it until it's actually a problem. And if it is a problem, it is what it is, you know? So, uh, we went there, we got an MRI. Um, they pushed me to the front of the, the line, um, which was nice. And then, um, we went back out to the car, uh, and we sat in our car because, um, they were going to rapidly read the, the images and hopefully I'd have some news right, uh, within a short period of time. So I called my physician and said, Hey, I got the MRI done. And, uh, he said, you know, I'll, I'll give you a call back. Just sit tight. And about, well, probably 45 minutes later, he, he called me back. And uh, I was on the phone with him and he said, you know, Mr. Lurie, I have some bad news for you. And I said, okay, um, what is it? And he's like, well, you, you have lymphoma cancer. And I said, okay. 
And he's like, you know, I'm sorry to have to break this news over the phone. And I, I said, no, I, I appreciate you telling me. I said, so um, like, what do I, what do I do now? And he said, I, I don't know what you mean. I said, well, they told me on the phone, turn around, get an emergency MRI, get right back here, go to the nearest hospital. Like, do I go to the emergency room now or what do I do? And I'll never forget his words because he said, uh, it's no longer a neurology problem. It's an oncology problem. Follow up with your primary care physician on Monday. Good night. What day of the week is this? It's Friday. And what did that do to you? Um, well, it was devastating, you know, news to hear both to me and, and my wife, but the lasting memory I have of that phone conversation is the way in which he treated me. And, you know, we, we talk about treating people as people, not as objects. Um, but I look back at my career, especially early on in my career and, and I have regrets about treating people as objects. You know, for him, telling somebody that they have cancer was not a big deal because I'm sure that's something he does on a routine basis. But for the person receiving that message, I, I, I hope to only hear that message once in my life. Right. I, I hope I'm done, <laughs> I think. Um, but it wasn't a big deal to him. And I think as law enforcement professionals, you know, we go out to an accident scene, you know, a couple of cars crumpled, nobody's really injured. You got somebody who's really, really upset. And we look at them and we say, relax, it's only a car accident. Well, to us, it's only a car accident because that's our 2000th car accident. But to them, it's a really big deal. And I think it's really important to treat people as people. Try to remember what it was like the first, first time you went to a house on a hospice death, how respectful you were, how much time you took, how you explained everything to everybody. Well, after you do 50 or 60 of those, you're like, I got to check the box A, B, C, and D, and then I'm out of here. And that's why people can get a perception that we, we don't care because we, we treat them as objects. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget how I was treated. Well, I don't know if you're different than I was, but if it's Friday and I got to wait till Monday, that entire weekend is spent thinking about the world's possibilities that, yeah. that are out there. Yeah. So in, in typical fashion, you know what I did? What's that? I got back in my car and I drove the kids back up north <laughs> on Saturday and um, spent the weekend at my mom's house. And my wife was, I, she was livid with me. And <laughs> and I said, well, what am I going to do? You know, like, I'm just going to sit around here all weekend. The kids aren't going to have anything to do. I might as well go up and visit my mom and let them, you know, romp around in the woods and um, I said, you know what, you call you call the primary care physician on Monday because they're not going to be able to get me in. There'll be no testing till the end of the week. And um, I was probably 830 in the morning on Monday. My wife called me and uh, I said, yeah. And she said, I called the doctor and I said, oh, what the doctor say? She said, get your ass back. <laughs> the, do the, do the doctor said, you're an idiot. So, um <laughs> You know, I, I told my mom and my brother Dominic and his wife was up, were up there as well. So I was fortunate. I, I left my kids up there to spend a week um, with them. And, and Sherry and I, you know, handled uh, what needed to be handled with the doctor's visits and that. And so we get a much better picture when the kids came home. And, and so you, you, in the words of your wife, got your ass back down there. Yeah. And, and what happened then? Um, so, you know, you go through a series of tests and biopsies. And of course, I just can't have some run of the mill cancer. You know, I, they got to send biopsies out to the National Institute of Health and the Mayo Clinic for diagnosis. But um, it, I knew it was Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, but the, the cancer part of it was really not, not the worst part um, because, you know, I went through chemotherapy and I'd never wished that on even my worst enemy. And I had a bunch of radiation because the, the tumor was large and in my upper chest. But over the course of two weeks, the tingling in my feet 
went from the soles of my feet all the way up to my belly button. And I was, I was paralyzed from the waist down in, in a matter of two weeks. So, so in a matter of two weeks, you go from being 10 foot tall and bulletproof to not being able to use your legs. Yeah, I could run two weeks ago. I could run 10 miles at the drop of a hat. Um, and now, um, my legs were completely paralyzed. And if that wasn't bad enough, um, you know, oftentimes when you're, when you're paralyzed from the waist down, I had no bladder bowel control. So, um, I went from being 10 foot high and bulletproof on the top of my game to a guy who was sitting in a chair, pissing and shitting in his pants, unable to move. And it, it's it shows how because I think our minds are a lot alike in that uh, the cancer was bad and chemo was bad, but this other part over here was much worse because oh, yeah. this this attacks who I am. This attacks how I see oh, myself yeah. and how I think others see me, doesn't it? Oh yeah, and and psychologically that was that was a huge hurdle to try to overcome, and then. Um, the frustration on top of that with um, doctors not being able to diagnose the cause of the paralysis, I'd hate to tell you or know how many doctors I saw. Well, it, it, just for our listeners so they understand, uh, was the paralysis a result of the cancer? No, the two were completely unrelated. But but if when we think about this, you know, thinking on Thanksgiving week, without that, oh, without without that, I, I would have probably had stage four cancer because, and this is one of the things that that my physician, Doctor Michael Wheaton, who is my uh, excuse me. He's my savior. He told me, uh, you know, it's a, a good news, bad news kind of thing. He said, uh, if you'd have taken, um, because you took really good care of yourself, even though you were doing all this working out, your body was overcoming the um, deficiencies in lung capacity because of the tumor. So you were about six months late in coming in to see me. He said, if you'd have been 40 pounds overweight, a pack a day smoker and didn't exercise, you'd have seen me six weeks ago and we'd have nipped this cancer in the bud right away. Um, I said, well, wow, that, that's a big reward for, you know, eating right and trying to do the so right thing. So much for thing. taking care of myself. Um, but he said, the good news is, is that you're going to tolerate the treatments and you'll, you'll tolerate them really well because you're in excellent, excellent physical shape. And when it comes time to rehab, you're, you're going to be able, um, to do the hard work. And, you know, it's, it's kind of what you're doubt in life, you know? Hey Brent, I, I got to share this with you. Vic and I obviously stayed in touch d during this whole, this whole deal, but we didn't see each other because he's not coming to work and he's going to treatment and all this kind of stuff. And you got to worry about, you know, your immune defi uh, deficiency and all this yeah. kind of stuff. But uh, we made plans to go to a movie. And if I remember correctly, I think it was Lone Survivor, yep. if I'm not mistaken. And came to Vic's house to pick him up and his brother Dom was there. And I wasn't prepared for what I saw. Uh, I wasn't prepared to see Vic like that. And I see this guy that literally was 10 foot tall and bulletproof and he's struggling. And I got to thinking as difficult as that was for me to see that, I can't imagine what it had to been like for your wife and kids to see you like that. Yeah. We haven't really talked about that a lot um, as a family, but you know, that's, it's gotta be devastating you know, to see somebody that you care about. But, uh, you know, my wife is, she's the sweetest, kindest person I know, but she is unbelievably tough. And um, while we had some emotional times going, going through all of this, um, there's, there's nobody better I could imagine choosing to be at my side. She was a great cheerleader and supporter and, 
you know, there were a couple of times where she had to kick me in the pants and, and say, hey, you know what, My, you need to turn things around. Um, and um, I'll be forever grateful for it. And your doctor was correct. I mean, because as difficult as chemo and radiation and all that stuff was, because of your physical condition, you were able to finish it. And do you remember your last day? Oh yeah, that's one of the one of the great memories um, I have. You know, typically on chemotherapy day, it would be my wife and I. We we went to a hospital um, near the house. They have beautiful little cubicles there, and we'd sit there and um, you know my chemotherapy would usually take about three, four hours to get it all on board. Um, and this was, this was my last day. So I was really looking forward to not having to go back. And, uh, I was sitting in a chair and all of a sudden, you know, around the corner of the chair comes, you know, my brother Cal, who was a police officer in a jurisdiction, a couple miles South of, of Novi. And, uh, I was like, oh my God, what a great thing for, you know, for him to um, show up here. And uh, when I was finally able to stand up, I turn around and I saw a whole bunch of people um, from the PD, you being one of them, Kevin Ray, um, Jared Hart, um, who's been a guest here, and a lot of other people that I worked with, not only from the police department, but also from the fire department. And uh, it was really, really super emotional that that people would take time out of their day to to come here and, and support me through that. And that was a great day, man. Oh, it was great. That just got to goosebumps thinking about it. Uh, but but that, that wasn't the only thing that was going on in support of you. Uh, I mean, because in, in addition to people donating time and, and and all this kind of stuff that's going on um there was also a fundraiser that was done for you what was that all about so actually years before i got sick the department had well chief malloy had organized a police fire benevolent association and, and we held different fundraisers and raised money um in the event that you know a, an officer was sick or injured or hurt and um needed some additional financial support and i, I participated in those fundraisers like a lot of people did but i never imagined that one day i, I would have to be the recipient of uh, their kindness and generosity um, and each, each winter we would always put together, um, an alumni hockey game between the Detroit Red Wings and, um, the, uh, police officers and, and firefighters. And, um, as luck would have it, um, one of the fundraisers was, was in my honor. And, and I thought that that one was so appropriate, Brent, uh, because of, you know, b- Mr. Build his own rink in his backyard over here. And uh, up until then, he had been skating on the side of the police and fire. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Played <laughs> was, in those games. Yeah, he, that, 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 was, that was his deal. You know, not the golf outing, not so much. Yeah. But, 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 but the hockey game, you know, that, that was good. But, man, the turnout for that was, was overwhelming. Yeah, it was, it, it was a beautiful thing to see, you know. Um, we, we truly are a family. Um, and obviously, you know, my close friends and friends were there, but, um, there were also a lot of people there that, um, maybe, maybe through the years, I would say were work associates. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, it proved to me how people will rally around you in, in your time of need. And physically, physically, uh, you had prepared yourself for this thing right here. I mean, you were able to tolerate it because you were in such good physical condition. But you know, and I know that there are those times where psychologically we get down, oh, where, yeah. where, where we get down. And those types of things right there, man, that, that that's your brothers and your sisters coming to pick you up and say, hey, let us carry you for a little bit. Yeah, it is. I, I talk to people a lot about your mindset and in how you talk to yourself really matters. And when you talk to yourself, only you you hear you. So I don't, I don't know what you say to yourself. (laughs) All right. You can tell me one thing. It may be something different. Um, but how you talk to yourself matters. If, if you say you can't, you won't. If you say you can, you will. Um, and there, there were times, you know, for, for about, I was off work for about 
you know, nine months. And I had plenty of time to sit there and talk to myself and contemplate life and think about my priorities and how this would affect the rest of my life. And um, it was a huge, huge perspective change for me. Well, and you finish your treatments and you get the all clear that the the cancer Mm -hmm. is gone. And that's the good news. Yeah, that's the good news. But what's the bad news? Well, the bad news is, is that the, the paralysis still lingered. And I went to doctor after doctor after doctor. And they all told me the same thing, that um, this is your new normal. Um, you'll never walk again. Um, they all offered me pain pills for the pain that I was in. But I'd always ask them, is this going to you know, solve the problem or just mask the symptoms? And they said, well, it'll mask the symptoms. You'll be much more comfortable. Um, so I, I fired doctor after doctor. But my, my life changed when I got a chance appointment with Dr. Michael Wheaton from the University of Michigan Hospital. This guy changed your life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I set up an appointment with him. Um, I wish I could say, you know, I really selected him for his expertise and <laughs> background in that, but um, I selected him based upon first available appointment. <laughs> so God was watching and he put me in the hands of, of who I needed to be in the hands of. And as soon as he walked into the room, um, I knew that that things were my life would not be the same, that I was in um, the right spot. And uh, I, he walked over. He, he's a big barrel chested guy. He had a flaming red beard and thick red hair. And he walked over and he said, Mr. Laurie, my name's Michael Wheaton. And, and I just said, Doc, I, I'm already in love with you. <laughs> and he said, excuse me. And I said, I, I'm already in love with you. You're my kind of guy. And he said, well. You don't even know me. Why would you say that? And I said, uh, we're, we're at the University of Michigan Hospital, right, Doc? And he said, yes, we are. And I said, any guy who's going to wear his University of Michigan Hospital credentials around an Ohio State Buckeye lanyard is my type of guy. And uh, we, we had a good laugh over that. And he said, well, you know, let, let, let's see if we can get some answers to some questions. And uh, he spent about 45 minutes to an hour poking and prodding me and asking me a thousand questions. And um, at the end of that, he said, uh, you know, I think we missed something. Um, he goes, I, I, the, the paralysis and the cancer are not related. He said, we need to do some more tests. So over the next uh, few weeks to a month, we went back, we spinal taps and bone marrow biopsies and EMGs and um, blood tests. And uh, I met back up with him uh, a few weeks after that. And uh, he said, I got good news and bad news for you. And I said, you know, I'm sick and tired of these good news, bad news stories, you know. I said, well, what's the news? And he said, well, um, the good news is, is that you have spinal cord compression in in your lower back l5s1 um that's that's what's causing the nerve pain and the paralysis and i said okay you know what can we do about that he said you need to have surgery done on that because if if you don't have surgery um it's only going to get worse and i said okay so what's my what's my prognosis and he said well like what do you mean i said well i ever walk again and he said i i don't know he said that's in god's hands and I said, okay. Um, he said, you know, most of the time when people have this injury, we need to do surgery within 72 hours. Um, you've been over a year. In all likelihood, um, the nerves that are compressed are, are damaged and dead. And um, they, may not, they may not regenerate. So I said, all right. You know, at, at least it won't get worse. Um, because... You know, a lot of people think when when you have paralysis that it's an absolute absence of feeling. And, and, and it's that way for a lot of people. But mine was a constant buzzing and burning from my belly button all the way down to the tips of my toes. And the only way I can describe it is, um, have you ever put your tongue on a nine volt battery? 
Of not, course, of course, not recently. Have. <laughs> I have. I know what it's if like. you want to. <laughs> if you want to feel what my legs felt like twenty four hours a day, get a nine volt battery and stick your tongue on it and let it stay there for about as long as you can stand it. The pain was the last thing I thought of before I went to bed, and the first thing I thought of in the morning. Um, and if we could deal with that. Um, I thought, you know what, it, it's worthwhile having the, the surgery. And, and you, I assume you had the surgery. Yeah. So we scheduled the surgery, but the, he made an off the cuff comment to me that really, really changed things for me as, as I was getting ready to be wheeled out of, um, the the patient room, he, he said to me, he said, Mr. Laurie, do you know why most people don't get better? And I said, no, why is that, Doc? And he said, um, most people don't try hard enough. And I stopped in the doorway and I looked back at him and I said, do you mean to tell me this thing's going to come down to effort? And he goes, yeah, it could come down to effort. And I said, if it comes down to effort, I'll, I'll walk again. Um, and those, those words really, really changed my life because he is the first person who gave me hope. He didn't promise me anything. He didn't guarantee anything. He just said, you know what? You got a shot. It's kind of, kind of like dumb and dumber, you know, <laughs> you know, um, and th that's what I think of. Oh, you mean I still have a chance, you know, and, and that's all that, that I was looking for. And, uh, I, I credit him for, for where I am today. Well, hey, Brent, I'm going to throw this out here, uh, because the same, um, effort and I would say obsession that Vic used to put into working out to be in great physical shape. He now put over into physical therapy. And I know that because there were uh, a few occasions where I went and hit, picked him up after therapy. And I should have learned because the interior of my vehicle smelled horrible, <laughs> horrible. And, and Vic and I've gone to eat after going to, to death scenes and stuff like that, where, you know, people have been decomposing for a while. We smelt bad, but we've never smelt that bad. Yeah. And it was, but I'm telling you, this guy worked, but what, what's, what's the result? Where, where are you at right now? Oh, I, I can walk now. You know, I, hmm. I stand, I teach. Um, there's a lot of things I can't do. Uh, I, the likelihood of me running again, pretty slim. I don't think I'll ever play beer league hockey with my son, which was always one of my one of my dreams. Uh, I can't walk long distances. You know, I'm not going to go for a five mile hike or, or something like that. But um, I get up in the morning. I can walk, get my own coffee. You know, my passion is riding motorcycles. I have enough stability and coordination to ride uh, ride my bike. Um, I'm going to walk my girls down the aisle when when they get married. You know, um, so I have a lot to be thankful for. And, and Brent, just to point out here, riding his bike, he, he uh, the same obsession he put into working out, he puts into riding his motorcycle. Uh, how many times have you ridden your motorcycle from Michigan to Alaska? I've done it three times and uh, I'm going to do it one more before I before I hang up uh, uh, my helmet for and, the last time. And what wasn't there some four corner thing? I've, I've ridden to the four corners of the United States, which is about a 14,000 mile trip. OK, and, when you say you've ridden there in one trip. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Consecutive yeah. Michigan hey. to Maine to Key West to San Diego to Blaine, uh, Washington, and then back home. Oh, 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 he forgot to throw in there that in the middle of that, he stopped in Florida and taught a three-day class on de-escalation <laughs> in the middle of the whole thing. So I, I got to see you teach here a few months ago, and <laughs> it was one of the best openings that I've ever seen. He, he gets up in front of this group of people, uh, Brent, and, and he goes, okay, let's go ahead and let's address the obvious if we could. And the, the room gets completely quiet. And he goes, how would you describe how I walk? And nobody raises their hand. <laughs> nobody, nobody is saying anything. And then finally, finally, he goes, wait, we're not going forward until somebody answers the question. And finally, this guy raises his hand and Vic points out and says, so how would you describe it? And the guy goes, 
all effed up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Goes, well, that's a pretty accurate description. I said, yeah. It's amazing to me because I know you. I can tell when you're up there and you're experiencing pain, oh, yeah. but it never stops. You're teaching, you're walking the entire day. And and the, the first thing he does when he goes to break is you start doing what? As soon as you get to class, they start walking out. Yeah. I, I got to do some stretching, you know, um, to stay as loose as possible. And, you know, some of the time on the break, um, I'll, I'll sit down. But, you know, I am so blessed because of the lessons I learned in law enforcement, that never say die, no quit attitude, I, I apply to my personal life. You know, I, I can look at my lot in life and say, oh my God, my hip's killing me. My ankles are killing me. I can't walk that far. You know, that's not the way I talk to myself. You know, um, when, when I go to teach and I know I'm going to be spending eight hours on my feet, I know what the outcome is physically at the end of the day. That's not what I focus in on. What I focus in on is the blessing to be there, to be talking to those law enforcement professionals that want the information that I have. And, and, and I always remind myself, do you know how many people would love to have a full-time faculty position at a university and, and teach their passion? How many people would love to travel the United States and uh, instruct law enforcement classes? There's thousands of people that would want that job. And I just look at myself and I say, I'm so thankful I have it. The price I have to pay at the end of the day is the price I have to pay at the end of the day. Uh, well, as we're wrapping things up here, did you ever become a chief of police? No, my, my whole life... My whole life changed that summer of 2013. Would it be safe to say that physically you didn't get to where at the time, looking back, the time you wanted to be? Oh, no, I'm I'm still way short of what I want to be, but that's why I'm in the gym four or five times a week. Did your career last as long as you thought it was going to last at that time? Your police no, career? No, but when all of that changed and I had to reprioritize things. You know, I said, okay, here's the direction I'm going to go in. And I teach full-time at Madonna University. You know, I, I teach for command presence. I speak at um, the Oakland Police Academy. The relationship with my wife and my kids could not be better. And I wish I could say, you know, that I, that was attributed to me. Um, but I think our lives would have been very different absent the challenges that were presented to us. And my life, honestly, I believe is so much better today having gone through what I did than I think it would have been if I would have uh, attained my dreams. But, but it's, it's easy to lose sight of that if we dwell on what we don't have rather than what we do have. And and, and uh, I got to throw a shout out right here. And, and Brent, you don't know I'm doing this, but but my co-host Brent and, and our buddy, our producer, Aaron, they run a, a podcast, a music podcast uh, called Crossing the Streams. And, and I, I encourage you to go out and check out that podcast. But they did an episode on songs dealing with mental health. And, and I don't remember the exact name of the song, but the, the, this, this, this young lady and this young man, they're singing this song and they go to, and have to remember, it's just a bad day, not a bad life. And, and too often we get caught up in that little bit. And I'm not, I'm not oh, diminishing what true. you said at all, but if we become so focused on the bad things, we lose sight of all the good things that are out there. And, and you exemplify that here in Thanksgiving week better than just about anybody I can think of. Uh, if there's a guy who could be bitter about his lot in life, it's you. Well, I, I refuse to be bitter about it. And, and honestly, there's times where I've, do I think, you know, Hey, why me? Why not somebody else? Um, but I'm thankful it, it was me and not my wife not one of my kids, 
not one of my brothers, not one of my friends, because I, I would hate to look at them and say, oh my God, what, you know, what are they going through? And really, what can I do for them? I'm thankful it was me because I know whatever the outcome, whatever the challenges, I'll, I'll deal with that. Um, and, and it's made me a better person, you know, um, the, the, my perspective on life is completely changed. You know, when I, when I was sick, I wasn't thinking about my next promotion. I wasn't thinking about my next big case. I wasn't thinking about how much money I was going to make or not make that year. I was thinking about my family and, and my friends. Well, well, Vic, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. And I want you to know that I'm thankful for you. Uh, you are my brother. And I love you, man. I love you too, man. And I thank you for sharing this story. I think it's something we need to be reminded of often uh, is that no matter how bad things are, we have a lot to be thankful for. And, and Brent, I want to say this right here as we're wrapping up, man. Uh, I want to say how much I appreciate you, how thankful I am for you and how thankful I am for, for Aaron, for the work that is done and, and Brandon in the background and never get to see him how much how thankful i am that i i get to be a part of this with you guys you guys do fantastic work and i i want to say thank you well i i love the fact that we're able to sit here and, and hear Vic's story um i i have a, a health issue a chronic health issue myself and i'm sitting here and everything that he's describing i'm checking the boxes off like yep i went through that i've been through that when he said the term new normal Man, I've heard that so many times, and it's so funny the things you can get used to. But you're right in the fact that I there are things that I just physically can't do with my family anymore. But if I sit there and dwell on those, I won't be able to enjoy the things I can do. So I'm super there you go. thankful for that. And I appreciate you being so open and honest and, and telling your story with us today. And you you quoted Dumb and Dumber. I went to Shawshank because that's <laughs> the quote that comes to my mind. You know? <laughs> Hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things. No good thing ever dies. That's where I go. So thank you so much, and uh, we thank everybody that's that's listening here, and we appreciate Vic sharing that story. And we will put a link to the uh, Novi Police and Fire Benevolent Association in the, in the episode page if folks want to get some more information about that as well. And you can find it at Between the Lines with Virtual Academy.com. And happy Thanksgiving to everyone this week. 